was a good story and certainly had the children's attention. I just want to say um, I'm glad to look around and see a lot of name tags looking back at me. <laughs> uh, thank you for participating in that. And, and just to kind of explain what that's all about for those that didn't quite uh, catch that opportunity, it's just a simple thing we're doing from time to time to, uh, to kind of help some social interactions, to help build community uh, in the church. Sometimes we see each other often and, for example, uh, can't quite remember their name and therefore a little embarrassed to approach and say hello and have a little conversation. So just having a name tag kind of removes that barrier and kind of allows you to step forward and say hi to somebody and, and to get acquainted and we try to do interesting little things. I have had fun today seeing who is the oldest person of their siblings and being surprised by that or saying, oh yeah, I knew that. I, I knew them well enough. I would have guessed they're the oldest. And who's the baby of the family? Uh, the record I saw today was someone was baby or child number 11 of 11. Woo, that's a lot of kids in a, in a family. So thank you for doing that, and, and if you haven't done it, go ahead and do that. Mine's kind of losing its stickiness, and so it'll put it right there for the moment. But, but do that, and stay by for our fellowship meal, our lunch, and let those name tags just serve as an opportunity to uh, look around. And, and if you're number two of four, like I am, see if you can find somebody else that's number two of four. And then you can exchange notes of what it was like to grow up the second child in a family of four children. Uh, I even noticed a lot of the, the young ones are boys and girls having name tags, and it's excellent. Boys and girls, children, that's for you as well, and so I'm glad that you're writing your name and you're taking part in that. Taming the tongue. Anybody here good at tongue twisters? Yeah, you want to try a tongue twister this morning? Here's one of my favorite tongue twisters. Rubber baby buggy bumper. You ever heard of that one? Rubber baby buggy bumper. Everyone try that three times. Rubber baby buggy bumper. That's one. <laughs> yeah. That's one that I have uh, had fun with for many, many years, so my tongue is kind of dialed into it. I didn't really practice this morning, but rubber, rubber baby buggy bumpers, rubber baby buggy bumpers, rubber baby buggy bumpers. Hey, how about that? I, uh, I did not see that coming. Thank you. But I can assure you, as we launch into what James has to say about taming the tongue, he's not talking about tongue twisters. He's talking about our language. I want to set up our study uh, with a little sharing before we pray. My father never really cursed in the course of just everyday language. But when he would trip over his own temper... Certain words, curse words, would fly. And in one sense, it's easy to say, oh, they're just words. But each language, in each culture, there are words that have been kind of designated as the curse words, as the profane or the vulgar words. And, and they're invoked at the right moments or the wrong moments to express vulgar things. And unfortunately for my father, before certainly before he found Christ in his life, tripping over a temper could cause the curse words to fly. 
my mother had a deep disgust of vulgar language. And she was deeply disappointed when they were represented in our home. And I think, or in fact, I know that she was fearful that her children might pick up on my father's failed language expressed in those moments of anger and make it our own language. Especially, I think, she was fearful that her boys, me and my brother, looking up to dad as the example of manhood, would be particularly prone to picking up on that language. And she was vigilant to try to make sure that wasn't going to be the case. So in my home, in my childhood, language was carefully observed. <laughs> in our home, even words like shoot or dang or even man or gosh or geez, those words were called out as not appropriate. In our home, even the kids' versions of adult curse words were something that she sought to not allow us to kind of entrench in our minds. Uh, one time I remember in grade school, and I, I believe it was second grade, I was doing a, a phonics language worksheet. And on this worksheet were, were a, a grid of pictures and the letters A-R-N. And each word had the letters A-R-N or ended in A-R-N. For example, a picture of a barn, and I would fill in the B, barn. And I quickly went through the, the worksheet, and I easily got all of them except for one picture. And one picture had a, had a picture of a sock with a hole in the toe and some needle and thread. And I had no idea what they were asking for. And so I approached the teacher's desk and said, teacher, I don't know this one. And so she turned and gave me that uh, attention for the moment. And she says, well, that could be a little bit of a hard one for a little guy. When you repair a sock, it's called darning. So the answer for this page is the word darn. And my eyes grew big in shock, and I leaned in. I remember this very clearly. I leaned in, and I whispered to her, Teacher, I'm not allowed to say that word. In my mind, she just cursed at me in front of the whole class and wanted me to write it down. And I felt a conflict of conscience that I'm not allowed to say words like that. My mom had a value in the importance of proper language. My parents gave me my first big boy Bible when I was eight years old, Christmas 1979. Don't get distracted by the math. My first big boy Bible, a King James Version, Bound in genuine leather, I guess red was my favorite color at the time, and so mom chose, dad chose red, 
It has the little tabs to look up the Bible verses, and I pulled it out, and I flipped through, and I, I, I looking through my, my first big boy Bible, I, I smiled when I opened up to the book of Matthew, and for whatever reason, I underlined in red the entire beget section of Matthew chapter 1. I go, what in the world in my little mind thought this was so important to highlight in red? The begets. Jotham beget Achaz. And Achaz beget... <laughs> but it was fun to flip through. But this was my first big boy Bible. And I, and I do remember, I honestly remember that Christmas opening up this Bible and feeling a sense of, wow. And mom directing me to the presentation page that you see there on the screen, presented to Rodney Howard Payne II by Mommy and Daddy. We love you, Roddy. And then she wrote, Always abide by 2 Timothy 2, 15 and 16. My mother wrote a note in the cover of this Bible that has legitimately influenced my life. Interestingly, more relevant than she could have ever known when I was only eight. Um, you know, it, it, it seems appropriate at the moment. Um, you guys don't know this per se, but uh, my mother watches the live stream every Sabbath there in Michigan. And so, uh, Mom, thanks for my red Bible. Let me share with you what 2 Timothy 2, 15 and 16 reads. And I want to share it to you in the King James Version because there was a phrase that caught my mother's attention. It reads this way. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. This passage that Paul wrote to a young boy, young man, Timothy, who was an up-and-coming leader in the Christian church, uh, Paul is encouraging young Timothy to, to be a leader in the church who carefully studies the Word of God and teaches God's Word rightly and accurately, handling it well. And not only embracing what is true and sharing that, but then the following verse, verse 16, Paul then says, And shun profane Babylon. In the New American Standard Bible that I use most often now, it is translated, And avoid worldly and empty chatter. What it's really speaking about is Paul telling Timothy, Reject falseness. There are false teachers teaching false things and reject those profane babblings because if you embrace those false teachings, it will lead you away from God. Don't do that, Timothy. But my mother read this in her own context with her own desires to disciple me as a child. And she saw that phrase, profane Shun profane babblings. And as she read it, she saw it as a statement of saying, follower of Jesus, turn from vulgar and profane language. 
My mom's understanding of the text, understandably, as it reads in the King James Version, on the surface it certainly would seem to say, shun profanity. And that's not exactly what the text is about, but that's what God spoke to her in that moment, and she recorded in my Bible, and it was one of the first verses that was uniquely and distinctly distilled as, this one matters for you, Roddy. And so though her understanding, sorry mom, was a bit askew, <laughs> her position on the importance of words was absolutely correct. The Word of God has much to say about our language. God's wisdom given through Solomon certainly supports the significant placed upon our communication. I don't know if you've noticed yet in the book of James, but James has drawn a lot from the book of Proverbs, the wisdom of God expressed through Solomon. Here's just a few samples of how powerful our words can be. Uh, Proverbs 10, 31 to 32, The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom. But the perverted tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverted. Other examples in chapter 12 and chapter 15. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. That word spoken in rashness inflict like a sword's wound, but the tongue of the wise brings not a wound, but healing. And a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. The Word of God tells us our words matter. The Son of the living God, Jesus, told us that our words matter as well. In Matthew chapter 12, Several verses, not going to explain them too much, but just want you to hear them. Hear what Jesus has to say. He's confronting some of his oppressors. And he says this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Remember that. James is going to link to that in a few moments. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out his good treasure, what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure, what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words... You will be condemned. Now, let's just take a moment to clarify what I, what I assume is, is well understood already. But we're not really talking about the literal words, but the character that gives birth to that language. It's not just the sound that is coming out of our mouth, but as Jesus said, from the mouth speaks out that which fills the heart. It's not about the literal words, but it's about the language revealing character. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus said this, Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, 
and those defile the man. Clearly, words matter, for our words reveal the inner man, the character. Now, we've been studying the book of James's letter, and if you recall, he's already referenced the importance of words. Be quick to speak, or slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to hear. But more importantly, we're studying James' letter, and he references the importance of words in the first chapter when he said this, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so James, in his opening chapter, his beginning of his letter, he kind of sets up his themes. And we can draw from this passage. We've already looked at it at length. We're not going to do that again. But he's telling us that, that a pure religious expression, a, a spiritually mature person who is growing in their walk with Christ, their practice of that faith will express itself in certain ways. One of them is to have a charitable care for those who are suffering. And he spoke about that in length in James chapter 2. Another expression of that maturing faith of walking with Christ is they will keep themselves unstained by that which is against God. They will seek to push away the things that are against God and not allow it to stain their lives. That's part of a, an authentic religious expression. But he also said, and bridling our tongues. That an expression of a maturing Christian who's walking with Jesus can be seen in a person whose language is careful and it reveals a maturing process that's going on in the heart of that man. And today we're going to look at James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. James mentioned about having a charitable concern for those in need and he talked about it a lot in chapter 2. It seems now he's going back to that idea of bridling the tongue and he's going to unpack that for us here in chapter 3. Before we go any further, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, it seems fitting today to pray that you would use my tongue to speak well, to rightly understand your word and to share it with my brothers and sisters. And so, Lord, even with that prayer, I still pray that beyond my voice is your voice. And wherever these scriptures intersect with our lives, I pray that you would help us to see that intersection and to know how to take our next step in your power and your glory in it. So bless, Lord, more of you and less of me. May your word uh, come to bear. May we understand it and may it be fruitful. In your name we pray. Amen. Given that that was a, a bit of a lengthy kind of introduction before we pray, I, I want to work through these verses carefully, but as efficiently as I can. So James 3, verses 1 and 2, he starts in this way. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, a spiritually mature man, able to bridle the whole body as well. 
in the Jewish faith. And remember, James is writing to a very early Christian community, most of which were coming out of the Jewish tradition, Messianic Jews, followers of Jesus Christ, in the Jewish faith that they brought with them, a lot of their tradition and culture, rabbis were highly regarded and held high status. They held prestige and they held honor. Those that had the opportunity to follow a rabbi in his inner circle would forsake all in order to just be in the company of a rabbi. Jewish law said that rabbis were not to be paid for what they did. And yet in the culture, rabbis were to be taken care of and their needs well supplied. And so it was not necessarily a lucrative calling, but it was a I am provided for experience. And in Jewish law, it was even suggested that if your parents and rabbi are taken captive at the same time, you should ransom the rabbi first. No doubt written by a rabbi. But the, the logic was this, yep, your parents brought you into this world, but your rabbi can bring you into the world yet to come. Well, the teachers that James is talking about here, and James is including himself in that description of teacher, though he is an apostle, the teachers in this newly formed, quickly growing Christian faith were the equivalent of rabbis. There were apostles, there were prophets, but these were leaders on the move. In other words, the apostles' congregation was the entire church, and so they would move around like the apostle Paul moved around among the churches. But the teachers were more localized, and they would work within a congregation, and they were taxed with, uh, tasked with uh, educating new converts concerning the gospel and, and how to live in the following the example of Jesus Christ and, and to work with the congregation that they might grow and mature. And James, though he's clearly identified as an apostle, he seemed to locate himself in Jerusalem and, and he functioned in the framework of a Christian rabbi, a teacher. Teachers took the place of rabbis in the Christian church. And James is warning that men, you should not be so quick to desire that role. That role in the Jewish community was status and power and authority. They were held to a higher standard, and James is saying, don't be so quick to adopt and want to step into that position, because you will be held to a higher standard than the rest. It almost seems that, hey, we have a new Christian, we have a new religion beginning. Maybe I can be one of those. And James is saying, don't be so quick. All the attention that a teacher might receive, the honor, the, the reverence, the prestige, even the authority, they all represented spiritual hazards, really. And so James says, don't step into that because it's popular. Don't step into it for the wrong reason because there is a higher standard that is placed upon you. And then James acknowledges that we all stumble and we all fall short of God's will. He says, if someone never stumbles, it would indicate that they've truly reached that level of being fully spiritually mature. James, the brother of Jesus, knew that Jesus was the only one who never stumbled. Jesus was that ultimate spiritually complete mature man. 
The spiritually mature man has a character that is fully under control. So it would seem that on one level, James is talking to those who would be teachers. So let me ask a question. What is the main tool that a teacher utilizes? Their words. The tongue. And so James is now going to develop further the realities, the potentials, and the challenges of taming the tongue. But let's also be clear of this. Yep, the council is certainly speaking to those who, who hold that role of teacher in the Christian church. Certainly as I spent time in this passage, I knew that, boy, this is really speaking to myself and the position that God has put me in our church family. But it applies to those that maybe are teachers and other senses, Sabbath school teachers, for example, or anybody in the body of Christ who's been given a sense of influence and leadership. Careful, tame your tongue. But the words that we are about to consider are not just for the teacher of any description. They're for all those who follow Jesus. The context of James is addressed to all believers. There may be a little hint of emphasis for one group, but it would be unwise to say, oh, well, that's not for me. I'm not a teacher. No, for all follow Jesus. All who follow Jesus have a witness, a teaching witness of who Jesus is and how to live for Jesus. And it's expressed through how you conduct yourself And there's no other expression that speaks more clearly than the words, your language. For the words that come out reflect what is within. And so a Christian words are very much part of your teaching witness of who Jesus is. So James has previously made it clear that our our words, they, they have enormous impact and they reveal our spiritual condition. And it would be easy to say, come on, James, you're kind of exaggerating this a little bit. I think you're overdoing it. To ask the questions, can our speech really have that much impact? And it's as if James is anticipating the reader kind of having that, let's minimize the issue way of thinking. And so James now launches into a series of illustrations to reinforce his teaching that a small member of the body, the tongue, has a surprisingly large influence in how we live our lives. The first two illustrations read this way, James 3, 3 uh, to 5. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Second illustration, well, let's look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires, so also the tongue is a small part of the body. The two illustrations describe really quite effectively that if indeed the the small tongue, that is our language, our communication, if indeed if that can be brought under control, then likely the whole life is under some level of control. And his first example is that of a bit in a horse's mouth. James's mental image of a horse was probably that of a powerful creature that would carry a Roman soldier on its back through the streets of Jerusalem. And that powerful creature is able to be directed because of a relatively small bit placed in its mouth. And that bit is connected to the bridle, to the reins, and and a little tug of that bit 
can tell the horse which way the rider wants it to go. The, the second illustration was that of a ship's rudder. And, and of course, in today's world, that illustration of the ship's rudder, it's really only amplified because our ships today, like cruise ships, they are so huge. And even on those massive, huge ships, the rudder is still relatively small, comparatively speaking. But, of course, James had no concept of a ship like that. And our looking back, their great ships of the day were really relatively small by the way we count it. But in their day... This was a large ship, and the winds were strong, but that oar-type rudder allowed the pilot to direct the ship wherever he chose. And even then, in relation to the ship's size, the rudder was kind of small, but this small rudder held sway over the entire ship. James' point is given with a lot of clarity. The tongue, it's a relatively small part of our physical being. Yet its power for either good or evil is larger than we often assume. Sometimes we say, just words. And we minimize just how powerful those words coming from our mouths can be. The words of a person with influence can have outsized impact on those who hear them. Certainly teachers, preachers, parents. Your words have more power on your children than any other adult in this world. Coaches, leaders, even peers. If one can control their language, then they might just be able to control their whole lives because trolling the language is really difficult. And if you can master that, if you can tame the tongue, then you can probably tame about anything. And if language reveals the heart, then the one who has tamed the tongue has a spiritual maturity that Christ is working in them. James now employs a, a third illustration, and that of fire. So also the tongue is a, a small part of the body, yet it, it boasts great things. See how a great forest is set aflame by, by such a small fire or a spark, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our lives, our life, and is set on fire by hell. Strong words. You know, directing a horse or steering a ship, that's not inherently destructive, is it? But a small spark igniting a forest fire is destruction. We have a recent memory of that, just a year ago or so, with a, a firework set off in the gorge, a, one spark consuming so much. There in Palestine, the conditions dry. A little fire could quickly spread into a destructive force. And, and, and when James says a forest, we, we think of Mount Hood, forest. That's not what Palestinians would have thought. In their air dry region, it's really just an area where there was a lot of, of, of scrub brush. But dry and just ready to be ignited and spread quickly. And boy, a raging out of control fire. That's a pretty apt image of how, how words have the ability to ignite destruction that can quickly inflame beyond the speaker's control. 
words that are, that are spoken and spewed out in anger or, or words that are controlled but they are misguided gossip or just words that are harsh and unkind. They leave our lips and the damage they may call is beyond our control. A parent in a moment of anger wounds their child's heart. And because of that wound, the rest of their lives, that child now wounds other hearts. And they wound other hearts. The words that escape can spread like fire and cause so much damage. And all of us know this all too well. All of us have been both on the receiving and the giving end of this forest fire set aflame by the tongue. All of us have been on the receiving end of hurtful words spoken unwisely. Sometimes those hurtful words were intended to hurt, but oftentimes there's no intent to hurt, but the words nonetheless, they were just unwise, they were inconsiderate, they were not thoughtfully shared, and they caused damage in our hearts. And all of us have been on the converse of that, and we've spoken words that, that left our mouths in frustration or anger, or even just left our mouths in, in just ignorance of not understanding the nature of the situation and either way, it has inflicted damage on the heart of another. And unfortunately, most often, it's damaging those that we actually love and care about the most. And remember, James is writing to believers whose words wound those within the body of Christ. James isn't really addressing here how an unbeliever might use his words. There's not a high expectation of the unbeliever who does not have Jesus, but those who have Jesus, there's a higher expectation that your language will be tamed. He's talking about the uncontrolled, destructive language that happens within the body of Christ. We have a, a wonderful church family here, and I think a relatively spiritually healthy church family, and yet, as a pastor, I have the privilege of having very personal conversations with many, many people and given that trust and access into their life journey, and much time has been spent hearing how someone's words hurt them. James then goes beyond the analogy of just saying it's like a fire. No, he says the tongue is a defiling fire that blazes, fueled by sin and hell. And remember, the tongue James is referring to, it's not just this, this fleshly, fleshy muscle that sits between our teeth. He's really talking about our mind that sits between our ears. It's the heart and the mind that uses language as an instrument of expression that James is really talking about. And language that is driven by that which is against God, that language that is destructive can destroy your own life, and destroy others in your community. And when words are destructive within the body of Christ, it is not sourced in heaven, it is sourced from hell. And James here uses a, a powerful word that's translated hell in the text, Gehenna. And Gehenna was literally a, a valley in the region of Jerusalem that pre-David times was a place of human sacrifice by fire. 
And in the days of James and many years prior, it had become the city garbage dump where they would burn the garbage. And, and it was constantly burning, burning garbage. And so in Jerusalem, it became kind of emblematic of judgment by fire upon wickedness. And so the burning garbage dump became symbolic, if you will, of hell. And James points to that dump, saying nothing good comes from that place. It's a wicked place. Language that destroys is empowered by wickedness, not righteousness. Satan himself gives the tongue its destructive nature. We haven't time to go through all of them, but let me give you a fuller glimpse of destructive language. Gossiping. Destroying a character in the secrecy of not their presence. <laughs> Lying. Dishonesty. Boasting. Cursing the words that a culture has said. These are the words that are vulgar. Or even profanity that never utters a curse word, but it's profane just the same. Condemning, insulting, attacking. In an age of tweets and attacking character without even being face to face through postings, language, backhanded compliments that are slyly done but really critical. Sarcasm that is destructive and, and even just thoughtless and inconsiderate words. Never intended to harm, but not thoughtfully shared. Our language can be so harmful. And James says, Jesus wants to tame that tongue. He wants righteous words that bring healing, not wicked words that thrust the sword. Having established that our words hold potentially destructive power, James now tells us that he recognizes that it can be very difficult to bring the voice under control. And he says that in these words, another illustration. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. There's an echo in James's language when he speaks of species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures. It echoes back in the Genesis account. One, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. He's pointing back, do you remember by creation, by design, we as a as the human race, we were given dominion over creation as an enduring mandate from God. And yet, because of sin, because we fell away from God, we have lost dominion over self. We can dominate the animal kingdom, but we can't seem to tame our own tongues. And in one sense, a broadly thinking human effort has tamed you know, every wild creature, certainly in the sense of controlling or making it useful for our purposes, but no one's ever been able to fully do the same with the tongue. The tongue, apart from the indwelling of Christ, is a restless evil, a deadly 
poison. Human effort alone is not fully able to tame the tongue. It just takes the right circumstances, the right triggers. to make a typically controlled tongue suddenly unloosed and uncontrolled. Triggers such as circumstances such as a lot of stress or anger or hurt or even just physical exhaustion or, or you've been the recipient of abusive words and attacks. Just the right set of circumstances uniquely designed for each one of us, can all of a sudden make what is usually a pretty controlled tongue into an uncontrolled tongue. And just the right set of triggers can, can all of a sudden cause destructive words to erupt from us. We're pushed sometimes to an emotional edge and, and words just leap out of our mouths. And as soon as they leap out of our mouth, we often think, where did that come from? Sometimes it even surprises ourselves that those words slip through. And in those moments, we're reminded it's not humanly possible to tame our words all the time. It's because I'm broken. That's where those words came from. Now, if you've been following in this series in James's letter, you might recall in his description of a believer who's inconsistent in his professed faith, in James 1, verse 8, he said, the double-minded man, the man who tries to please God and please the world at the same time, claiming to have a faith in God but having no works to evidence that faith in God. And now James is pointing out the double nature of the tongue. And he says it in this way, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men, men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. James details out things that should not be a reality in the lives of those who follow Jesus. Things that should not be a reality in those who were literally created with the imprint of God's character. With our words, we speak praise and blessing to God. This ought to be. But with the same mouth, we curse others who are the children of God. This should not be. The God-given ability to, to express ourselves, the God-given ability that we can express praise to God and and express love and kindness to others, it ought to be used correctly and wisely and, and with carefulness to use this God-given ability to communicate, to destroy others who are made in the image of God. James says it ought not be. And finally, James drives home the absurdity of the double-minded tongue. Can a spring spill both fresh and salt water at the same time? No. Can, does a fig tree grow olives? No. Does a grapevine produce figs? No. He is hearkening back to the book of Matthew. He's remembering when Jesus said, By their fruits you shall know what resides within. Therefore, out of the mouth of a good person comes good words. 
out of the mouth of a righteous person are righteous words. Out of the mouth of a kind and loving person will flow kind and loving words. But so also is true. Out of the mouths of an angry person comes angry words. Out of the mouth of a bitter person, bitter words. Out of the mouth of a critical, mean-spirited person comes critical, mean-spirited words. Out of the mouth of an uncontrolled person comes uncontrolled words. The broadest thing is out of the mouth of a sinner comes sinful words. And James says this ought not be. How are we doing? You feeling good? <laughs> are you feeling like, I got this? Or are you feeling like, oh boy, I remember the words I said yesterday. <laughs> are you discouraged or challenged? Either way, let me raise the bar just a bit higher. If you think James is teaching... That the spiritually mature person is one who is able to bite his tongue. Then you'd be wrong. James is not talking about just, don't say that. I mean, if destructive words rise up in your heart and mind at that kind of triggered moment, it is a good and wise idea to bite your tongue. But just biting your tongue falls well short of what James might describe as a tamed tongue. James doesn't say a tamed tongue is just the tongue that's bitten at the right moments. Remember, the, the tongue is being used to symbolize the character from which words arise. And Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth reveals what's in the heart and mind. A tamed tongue in its highest ideal would represent a heart and a mind that is so Christ-like that destructive words don't even occur to us. It's not about just biting those words. It's about having a character that doesn't even think of those words. If ever Jesus had a moment to rightfully spew destructive curses, it would be when He was being nailed to the cross, but He spoke words of forgiveness, not cursing. And that's not because he was biting his tongue. What flowed from his lips evidenced what was in his heart. He loved those who were wounding him. There's hope, though. Did you catch the subtle hope in James 3, verse 8? It's tucked inside that first phrase, but no one can tame the tongue. It's true. No one can tame the tongue. That is to say that no person in their own brokenness can truly tame the tongue. But this is not to say that God cannot bring the tongue under control. While the tongue cannot be truly tamed by our own efforts, it can be brought under control by the indwelling Spirit of God. James doesn't simply say that the tongue is untamable. But he is saying that it cannot be tamed by any power that resides in the broken, fallen nature that I possess. 
As we close today, I think the words of Romans 12 speak wisely to the hope that God indwelling in us can change our characters, can mature us spiritually beyond the impulse for destructive works. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. That would include the tongue. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And while the mind is being transformed and the journey of this life experience as a follower of Jesus Christ, as that transformation is taking place, the fruits of the Spirit are ever increasing. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control in terms of the fruits of the Spirit isn't really about not having that second helping. It's not really about the discipline of, I will take a walk every day, or I will have my Bible studies every day. Yeah, it could be loosely attached to that. But he's talking about a character that is under control and is having victory over the battle of destructive works. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, church family, when we submit to and participate with the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, we can have a faithful hope that we can embrace the words that Paul later gave in Ephesians 4 about our words. And we'll close with this and pray. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Our Father in heaven, May your words to us bring healing and fruitfulness. Lord, may your indwelling spirit every day, every day, help us to have that fruit of self-control, especially with our language. Lord, tame our tongues to your honor and your glory and for the edification and blessing of those in our lives. In your name we pray.